previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm not going to stop listening to the person's music just because, yeah. you know, what they did. I'm not going to do that, but am I cautious on what I play around my kids and stuff like that? Of course. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Episode 68 of the Sports Refuge podcast is live and on the feed. As always, I'm your host, Earl Holland. The year 2020 was supposed to be a time for new beginnings, new resolutions, and new changes. But all of those things were put to the wayside as a result of the effects of COVID-19. Due to the pandemic, the normalcy of everyday life, including vacations, social gatherings, and even pro and college sports were brought to a screeching halt. But even with the drastic departure from the routine, there were still plenty of stories that were told from the guests who appeared on this show in 2020. In this episode, we'll look back at some of our most interesting guests as they share their experiences in these excerpts from past shows. Now, let's get things started with this clip featuring radio personality Benny Pinella as we talk about his interest in radio at a young age, the changing face of the radio industry, and how the quality of sports announcers has degraded in the age of overproduction. How did I fall in love with radio? I have a very local, weird, interesting story. Um, ever since I was a kid, I remember my mom would put the, the radio on and she'd always turn it down when like the traffic and weather reports would come on. And I, me and my brother in the back seat would do them. And I, was, I always like really put in like, you know, not my time, but like I, I put in a lot of effort to like always try to like get the traffic report sounding as good as I could. It's something stupid and small, but over time I just kind of like realized I really did enjoy doing something as simple as sitting in the backseat of my mom's car when I was five years old and, and just talking, you know, and acting like I was on the radio. And after that, when I went to high school, I found an opportunity to get involved in media. Uh, St. Mark's had a media uh, program, did a little bit with that, um, got involved with a couple of local radio programs couple of guys gave me an opportunity to intern, so I did that. Then I went off to college, and I really fell in love with radio and broadcasting then. And I've done radio. I've done TV. I've worked those late nights, those 3 a.m.s before, uh, overnight shifts before. And, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've done a lot in the business, and just being a 26-year-old, you're like, well, how much could you have done? I mean, there's pretty much not much that I haven't done. I've, you know, I'm on both the marketing side, the production side, the programming side, on air. I've cut commercials. I've reported traffic news. Um, I reported on the the election. I've I've done a lot of cool things in my life, and um, I mean, I, I guess the the kind of genesis of it all started in the back of my mom's car, and you know, and for some people it's a little bit different, but for me it was just in the back of my mom's car listening to a couple of local radio people, and I've been in love with it ever since. Stations don't really like you unless you have like a big social media profile or something like that, or like you're you're already a personality. Like, it, and that's not to say like stations don't like to develop talent, but Kind of feels like they they just don't want to you know put their time into developing someone. They'd rather just have a finished product. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that completely because now you see all these legends are starting to retire or die off. How are you going to find the next oh, star? They're, and they're not. That's the thing is that they're just not like it. Like you know, uh, you know, we we see uh, Mike Francesa. He's getting ready to retire again. We have the rumors are Howard Stern's going to retire. I don't know if I necessarily believe those, but that's the rumor. Um, I, I feel like what a lot of them are going to start to do is move over and just do their own podcasts, which I have had it. But you're right. I mean, they're not replacing a lot of big, huge celebrities. And I, I really wonder the next one, I think the next big legend to fall would be like, what happens to Elvis Duran when he retires? Like, is someone going to replace his show? What's going to be the show? I would think Ryan Seacrest or, or Mario Lopez would be the show. But then 
who's after them because you can only stretch them so far. So it's interesting, and it's a good point you bring up. They're not replacing Legends in radio anymore. It kind of seems like it's going to go one of two ways. I think the one way is going to be you're going to have one set show that'll be like the morning show across the It'll be like maybe one or two. Or the other way is you're going to go back to local radio and you know have have your local radio people. I would hope for the latter, but I feel like the former is going to is going to definitely take over. And I think that's something – and I go back to my experience working in newspapers, the same issue where you have all this syndicated content. But the problem is if you're missing out on local news, people aren't going to care about no. something that's going to happen not even in their market or in their area. And that's a big issue because – and I look at it on even on the R&B side. Like guys like Donnie Simpson and those guys, they're eventually – Donnie Simpson is probably reaching his 60s, 70s. And what do you do now? I mean eventually – I don't know how they're going to refresh that crop of young people. And I know a few people who are my age, so they're starting to hit 40. So that means really they only have a good maybe 25, 30 years left, depending on if things don't change You know, by that time, by mm-hmm. the turn, time they even turn 50. Yeah. Now I, so one of the favorite shows of mine when I was growing up was uh, Sundays with Sinatra and Sid Mark. I'm an old soul. And I he's not, I don't think he's doing the show that much anymore. If he does, it's 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 mostly canned stuff now. What happens when all of these legends go away? Who's going to be the next one up? And it doesn't seem like radio has ordained the next person. Now, that could be for a variety of reasons. People like Elvis Duran, I, I'm, I think he's, what, in his 50s, 60s? He might be in his early 60s, mid to late 50s. I, I, it, they still have time before they have to go in and handpick the next Elvis Duran. And for the most part, he's also built the team up there. So, you know, they might just shuffle the you know deck chairs, so to speak. Um but I mean, it's it, it's interesting. I I don't know what they're going to do with these radio personalities. I would hope that I'm on that list, but I also know that the the model of radio has changed. It, it I don't really care anymore about being a big radio personality. Sports coverage has gotten so repetitive, and, and really, if anything, it's gotten worse. Like I remember going back to like watching old sports broadcasts when I was studying in college back in like the early '90s and '80s. They set things up so well. I felt like every game was larger than life, even if the Titans were like. Four and six, I felt like, oh, this game's must-watch TV because it's Steve McNair going up against this player. Now, people are quick to jump on a player if he's not that good. Like, Marcus Mariota's only been in the league like three or four years, and people kind of already are like, yeah, he's not good. Like, Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield's been in the league a year. It's almost like people forget he was a rookie of the year last year. I know he's having a bad year, but that happens, you know? And I feel like with sports coverage now, it's so blase. If they kind of realize like, oh, this player's not that good, they don't really talk about you. And they kind of form the same like cookie cutter coverage of every single game. It's team A versus team B. And it's not special anymore. They don't really doctor it up. They don't really talk about what makes the teams different. Every team essentially isn't the same. That's for every sport, every level, pro, amateur. It's gotten really bad. And I think about it, and the best thing, like you said, looking on YouTube, all you have to do, you could spend maybe an hour or two hours looking at old sports intros from the 70s and 80s. Oh, my God. How Howard Cosell would drum up a Monday night football game and make it seem like— Monday night football between the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. Very interesting note. I found out that Telly Savalas, Kojak, the actor Kojak— Worked at ABC and got Howard Cosell his first sports job. Get out of here. At least that's what Wikipedia said. So I'm going to go by Wikipedia because he, before he went into acting, he was doing a lot of stuff. He was working in news. Telly Savalas was working in news yeah. before he started doing some acting on the side. And then he. That's cool. Yeah. And Howard Cosell is one of the greats. I yeah. mean, he is one of the great. But 
again, what I like about like Howard Cosell and uh, some of my favorites are like uh, uh, Pat Summerall yeah. and Al Michaels. Well, Al Michaels, peak Al Michaels is yeah. fantastic. This this iteration of Al Michaels, I feel like is almost like I, you can almost tell with some guys when they're calling a game how much the behind the scenes people are really influencing them calling the game. And I feel like that's become Al Michaels now. Like Al Michaels has a lot of like NBC. I almost feel like NBC producers and execs are like in the same room as him saying like, Al, you got to mention this. Al, you got to mention this. Make sure you talk about this, Al. Kind of like what's happened with WWE. Like oh, yeah. And on Fox, like yeah. You just hear, you can tell that like Vince is in their ear and like, and like Triple H is in their ear just saying like, hey, remember, you got to talk about this. Remember, you got to talk about this. And it's, it's just made it boring. Like it really, yeah. yeah, like let the play-by-play guy color the game the way he wants and color the broadcast the way he wants. Jim Ross is one of my, is in every time I bring Jim Ross up, in a conversation of the greatest play-by-play people of all time, people are like, what? The, are you smoking something? I'm like, no, he is. He is one of the best at play-by-play. That whole GOAT discussion, that, that that's something we should have for another time. But there's like six people who are in the category of GOAT when it comes to basketball. Uh, yeah. it's, it's Will, Kareem, Jordan, Russell, because the rings. I don't know if I put Russell in there. Here's the thing about championships. Right? Yeah. Championships in the GOAT conversation. You can be great and not win championships. Or as many as you want. Now, in order to be great, you have to win at least one or two. Yeah. I would say you have to win at least two. Yeah. You Here's the thing, okay? In the NBA, especially now, there are guys that have won like four rings that have that have done nothing to deserve them. Mm-hmm. Not saying Bill Russell's done that. Bill Russell's fine. I don't put Bill Russell in my top six because I just don't. I think there's better players. I think LeBron's a better player than Bill Russell. I don't think of LeBron as a goat. I don't think of Bill Russell as a goat. I think the greatest player of all time is Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I waffle between him and Kareem, and, and, and third place would be Wilt because mm-hmm. Wilt did. Imagine Wilt being more athletic than Shaq. Yeah, because Wilt was a, I mean, of course, Philly guy too. He was a, he was a sprinter. He he held long jump records. He was more athletic. He played volleyball and mm-hmm. all this stuff. I, I I put Kareem three for me, um, and we're not we're not going to go too mm-hmm. deep in the goat discussion. I yeah. put Kareem three to me because Kareem, I don't like Kareem is like looking back on his career, he was so like not one dimensional, but you you kind of knew what he was going to do, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I just think at the time, uh, him and Wilt kind of have that that like at the time they were just so big and so mm-hmm. fast and so much more athletic than the guys they were playing with. Wilt has the edge for me because Wilt dominated. Like understand at that era. Wilt dominated that era of basketball and Kareem did as well. But, but especially around that time, you had like the rise of Larry Bird, the rise of Magic Johnson. And then yeah. really towards like the middle point of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's career, you really were starting to think like, is he the greatest of all time? But like when you go back and look at the era that Wilt Chamberlain played in, you, there's no other, like yeah, you, I mean, you, you can't say Pistol Pete Mar- Maravich is better than, than Wilt Chamberlain. He's a, he's a hell of a passer, but hell of a passer, yeah. but he's no Wilt Chamberlain to me. The greatest basketball player of all time is Michael Jordan because he personified everything you want, and not just a basketball player, but an athlete. Yeah, you want a guy who's going to go out there and wants to rip the other team's heart out, take a bite, and spike it into the ground. And that's Michael Jordan. Yeah, and I think Will gets hurt because then you lost all those times to Bill Russell. You were considered selfish. Maybe he wasn't, but I mean, just the fact that they're always going to say he always thought about was scoring. All he thought about was scoring. I mean, I mean. But the funny thing is that nobody will ever score 100 points. I don't think anyone will ever. I mean, no one will ever get it close to scoring 100 ever I th- again. I think they will. 
And here's why. The way the NBA has become is such a scoring happy league and and such a lack of defense. Like, like everyone's making this big stink about or like big kerfuffle. All oh, the Sixers are the longest team in basketball. They're the biggest starting five. They're still allowing like 115 points on nights. Like there's they're still not great. I think if you got the the right scenario with a team that has two stars, just two, and then maybe a third guy who who shoots or maybe a third guy that does something, but the two decently sized stars. I think one of those stars could bust out and have a 100-point game. And I think that's not out of the realm of possibility. The way defenses are, they're very lackadaisical. Defenses are being stretched more now than ever, especially with the popularity of a three-pointer. The basketball player I thought could have done it if he never got hurt was Kevin Durant. Because Kevin Durant has a two-phase game. Play inside. He can back you down. He's strong enough to back you down even though he's kind of skinny. And he can still he can still pop. Pop and shoot. I mean, he's still a really great shooter. With the ankle, with the with the Achilles, I don't know if he'll ever be able to do that. The next guy on my list, if he ever learns to shoot, would be Ben Simmons. Because Ben Simmons is so dominant on the inside that he, if even if he had an average shooting game, I think he could get close to 100 points a couple of times. Talking about the Pat and Benny show, uh-huh. what was the impetus behind it? And really, how have you grown that show since its inception? So Pat and Benny show is an interesting start, uh, much like my in, you know my introduction into radio, just being on my back of my mom's seat. Um, I met my friend Pat when I was a sophomore in high school over my friend Alex Police's house. And we were watching game seven of the NBA finals that year. I think it was Heat versus the Spurs. And it was the Ray Allen three. And um, there's so many stories that come out of just being in Alex Police's basement. Anyway, um, I met him then and I kind of got, you know, kind of got like me and him kind of vibed early on. And I kind of got the gist that he was just he had this interesting, you know, kind of take on sports. And he does. He he looks at things in a much more calmer way than I do. Like I'm very I'm very much like a typical Philly sports fan. And he is, too. Um, but I jump on things early. Like if, if I, I was the first one in my friend group to kind of call out Howie, Howie, Howie Roseman for the Eagles and say, he really isn't that good of a drafter. And I kind of realized that after he drafted Derek Barnett and Derek Barnett had the injury last year. And I said, he really doesn't do well in the draft. So there's no reason for him to keep draft picks. And I took a bunch, I took a bunch of flack and now people are starting to come around to my point of view, but no one's saying, thank you, Ben. Anyway. Pat takes a little more of a calmer approach and more of a sensible approach. So I think me and him kind of mesh really well. So the genesis of the Pat and Benny show was I graduated college, got the job here at iHeart, and I kind of wanted something else to do. And I was working really late at night. I was working till like eight or nine o'clock at night. And um, I got into 302 sports with Pat. So I asked him, I said, can we meet for lunch? And we met at Anthony's Coal, uh, Coal Fire Pizza in Pike Creek. And I said, this is my idea. I want to do a sports talk show. It'll be me and you. We'll call it the Pat and Benny show because it sounds a lot better than the Benny and Pat show or any other name we could come up with. And I also think like keep it simple sometimes with sports names. Like no, you don't have to go off the like, you know, uh, um, like Eagles fandom sports podcast. Like that's way too much. Like Pat and Benny show. It's branding. It's easy. And um, I didn't want to make it just sports. I wanted to make it a little bit of everything. Now it started out just sports. Um, and over time, I. I kind of convinced the team and then we added we added my friend Nick in there because he he's a very loud and, and very rambunctious guy. We added my brother in there because his knowledge of completely irrelevant athletes is, is phenomenal. Like he when we would go out drinking and that's a lot. A lot of the podcast is started. We went out drinking. Um, he walked over to Pat one time and I was standing next to Pat and we were watching like I think a Sixers game and he grabbed Pat on the shoulders and he looked at him. He said only the words Shavlik Randolph. <laughs> And walked away. And Pat looked at me and went, 
he just brought up Shavlik Randolph. And we had a 35-minute conversation about Shavlik Randolph. Because all of us, each and every one of us had a different memory of Shavlik Randolph. I remember going to a Sixers game. And they said, now entering the game, Shavlik Randolph. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? Who the heck is Shavlik Randolph? And and that, from there it went. So I brought in my brother and um, for the most, for the early part of it, they wanted to kind of talk just sports, but now they're starting to understand doing just a sports podcast and get old pretty quick. And, you know, the content's seasonal and, and if the Phillies aren't doing anything, then you have nothing to talk about that week um, in the summer. So we, we kind of started to grow it. And um, now we, we, we've done a lot more Delaware related stuff and we've done, we've done a lot more um, hard talk and we cover a lot more national news. We did a segment on the, on the LeBron James uh, China thing, which we actually broke down his entire podcast, which is something else I don't like that the big news, news media companies do. They don't cover the whole story. They only cover the clips. So we cover a little more of the whole story with that. And I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's always growing. It's always changing. Um, we've been doing it for only about two and a half years, so we still have more to go. But, um, it, you know, we're getting new logos and, and, and we kind of, you know, t- tire our fans out pretty quick because they're always like, oh, you got a new logo now. Well, we, we've changed it twice and we're going to change it a third time soon. Um, and then we, we have merchandise. We have all different kinds of stuff. And I've, I really like the promotional part of it because um, while most people are like, oh, promote it this way. I have guys working on that, but I also like to go and do some other stuff. Like I've kind of gotten into NASCAR, so we uh, we have a sponsored iRacing car that has you know a couple hundred, you know, I think a couple thousand people that watch that watch the streams. So um, yeah, we we've grown it that way, and um, it's a really popular show. And uh, the guys they make it they make it a lot of fun. And um, my favorite part is just coming up with production. Like I love that I can go in there and come up with interesting segment intros. That's more my thing. A special thanks to Benny Pinella for taking time to be part of two episodes discussing his love and passion for radio. We now go from one medium, radio, to another, print journalism, as Mitchell Northam talks about his career writing for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, his move from Georgia to North Carolina, and how the newspaper industry has used the pandemic as a means of thinning its ranks. Most unique. There's actually, I mean, two that sort of came to mind in Atlanta that I did while I was at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. One is a little bit sports related, but the story really has nothing to do with sports. So they're both sort of involving celebrities. Um, So when I was at the AJC, I covered North Fulton County, which is basically the area above, you know, Atlanta. Sort of suburban, um, very rich, kind of white collar. A lot of celebrities, you know, have houses there and stuff like that. So I think this was the summer of 2017 when that first big R. Kelly story came out in BuzzFeed. That story dropped on a weekday morning and, you know, one of my colleagues kind of read through it. And one of the houses that he had allegedly been keeping, you know, women hostage in, according to the story, was in kind of my coverage area. And so I went out to the house and the parents of one of the girls that he had sort of been allegedly, like I said, keeping uh, hostage sort of under wraps. They held a press conference in front of this house. The house was the blinds were like papered up and stuff. Um, so that was just a very just weird thing because it involved, you know, this singer that, you know, everybody knows and stuff. And then this topic that is super just, you know, kind of crazy and really serious. So I, that was a story I followed. I probably wrote 10 stories about R. Kelly when I was working at the AJC from that 
So all that happened. I probably wrote, you know, three or four stories just based off of that. Then a few months later, he had a concert actually in Atlanta that was heavily protested. So I went and covered that and talked to a woman who was organizing the protests and was a victim of sexual assault and kind of was the driving force of this hashtag mute R. Kelly campaign. And then shortly after that, um, so the houses, he actually had two houses in North Fulton County. Neither one of them he, he owned, but he rented. Probably about, I would say, six months later after those kind of initial stories came out, um, one of those houses got robbed and just ransacked. So that was a news story. And then probably six months after that, we get kind of lawsuits and things like that emailed to us and they're easy to search. And I got pretty good at like looking at different public records and stuff while I was there as a news reporter. So he uh, ended up getting evicted from one of those homes. Uh, you know, I wrote a story about that. Um, so yeah, just kind of covering all the uh, problems that R. Kelly had in Atlanta while I was there it was definitely a big one. And the second one off of that, like I said before, a lot of rich celebrities and stuff, even athletes, had houses in North Fulton County, like I said before, really kind of, you know, well-to-do suburban area with lots of big houses. LaShawn McCoy had a house there. This was probably the summer of 2018, I think. And um, there was basically a thing where he was out of town training. Someone broke into his house and beat up his, at the time, ex-girlfriend who was still living there and robbed her and some other things. So there's that initial thing. But then it starts coming out that the girlfriend thinks that LaShawn McCoy set her up. And uh, it sort of kind of spirals from there. You know, we requested, you know, 911 records and phone calls and things like that. And they had had a lot of trouble before and he was trying to kick her out of the house. And so there's just a lot of things going on there. And I actually went to the house and knocked on the door and you could see the kind of cameras were removed from the house and there were cardboard boxes inside and stuff. Nobody was home. And, uh, you know, he denied all this. And then LaShawn McCoy didn't, but his lawyer and the girlfriend and her lawyer went to court. And I covered that trial. It was basically an eviction trial. He was trying to evict her from a home he owned, but she had belongings in the home. So it was a big mess. So <laughs> that was another, you know, story that I wrote, you know, several stories about and stuff. And, you know, nothing ever came down from the NFL. But uh, it was kind of a, you know, sort of a conspiracy theory that he had someone break into his house and beat her up to get her to leave. But it was never proven. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely a crazy one. I got interviewed by a radio station in Buffalo because he was still playing for the Bills at that time, you know, just because they were trying to keep up with the story, too, and figure out what's going on. So, yeah, those are two of the, like, more kind of surreal, kind of crazy ones that I've covered. During when I was covering the R. Kelly thing and writing several stories about him, I got, you know, a random number called me one day, a guy claiming to be R. Kelly's manager, basically trying to get me to take down a story from the website that we had written about him. It was the one where I wrote that he was getting evicted and I had court documents and police records that said this. Um, so, you know, it was true, but he was trying to get me to take the story down. Um, and he wouldn't tell me who his name was or, you know, anything like that, but sort of came across as threatening, basically just like, you need to take that story down and this and this and that. And uh, so that was kind of weird um, and a little scary. And, uh, you know, it turns out like six months later, I ended up finding out who the guy was. I mean, he got arrested south of Georgia for uh, making threatening phone calls to one of the alleged girls that R. Kelly sort of had in his group. So, yeah, those were definitely probably the two top kind of weirdest, most memorable 
kind of stories that I followed and chased while I was at the HAC. There are some newspaper companies that have sort of, not just newspapers, but also just sort of digital outlets that have kind of taken this opportunity to say, maybe they were planning on cuts before anyways, but they've taken this opportunity sort of behind the guise of, you know, this pandemic to say, oh, well, we can make the cuts we need. And they can say they can do it right now because there's no sports going on, but they probably won't even be bringing those folks back when sports resumes. So yeah, it's definitely been tough. I know there's been some newspapers and some other digital outlets who've sort of taken their sports reporting resources and kind of redirected them into news. You know, a lot of sports reporters, you know, you and me included, you know, can do news. You know, most sports reporters learn how to do news before they dive straight into sports. So it's definitely something that people could do. And, you know, it's good to see some of those resources kind of getting rerouted uh, for the time being. But yeah, it's also been hard to yeah kind of watch people, you know, lose jobs and opportunities and stuff as well. Yeah, and especially being able to do both news and sports, I think that allows you to have that versatility, that extra set of skills that normally a lot of people wouldn't have. Somebody who's used to doing features, it's funny, when I saw a lot of jobs that were, I guess, talking about being able to do features, seeing the word feature not as a dirty word, but as something beneficial, and it's it's crazy. I feel like they're all intertwined in some way. I know I'd rather do sports, maybe police on an outside level, but other than that, those are probably the two things I'd rather do. But then again, features, they aren't that bad unless you just, I feel like you have to have that versatility, especially now already hearing about how they're letting off some of the more experienced people as opposed to the the younger ones but i feel like that's a whole uh disastrous thing as well you know less said the better about a particular company that we used to work for yeah i've kind of seen it both ways where you're seeing you know some younger people get cut just because they're less experienced and they're cheap and they don't have sort of that uh kind of power to fight back against something like that maybe they're not part of a union if the particular media company has one. Um, and then I've also seen it where they're cutting, you know, the guys who have been there 25, 30 years, because those are the guys who, you know, those incremental raises over time, they're making the most, you know, at the paper and it's easy to, you know, cut that cost, you know, during this time. But uh, yeah, someone once told me, you know, you often see that, that sports reporters can do news pretty well, um, but vice versa isn't true. You know, someone who's just done news most of their life probably would have trouble kind of, you know, going to a high school football game and uh, hanging in the press box and taking their own stats and stuff. Um, That's a little bit different than, than, you know, going to the courthouse. So, uh, yeah, it's sort of funny that way. But, yeah, hopefully, like I said, when all this is over, hopefully – you know, there's more jobs and more opportunities that open up and things kind of get restocked and reshuffled, but uh, definitely tough times right now. You talk about COVID-19. I know that as a sports writer and a sports blogger and a guy who's done a number of jobs, that's had to play a huge impact on what you were doing prior to that shutdown and what you've been doing ever since. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I have a planner. I've been doing a lot of freelance work since I moved to North Carolina and I moved here late late October, 2018, actually. And before that, I was in Atlanta working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, came here to follow my um, then girlfriend, now fiance, for a job. Um, and I just decided to jump feet first into the freelancing game. And, um, you know, everything was going really well. You know, I had a lot of work. And, uh, you know, going into March, uh, at the beginning of March, actually, I went to Nashville and 
went to Atlanta for some soccer work, had been in Greensboro, North Carolina for the ACC men and women's basketball tournaments. And then uh, on March 12th is kind of when everything sort of fell apart. It's when the NCAA tournament got canceled and when the soccer season started getting postponed. So at that point, I had work basically every day through April 10th or so. And uh, pretty much on that day or a few days after, kind of all those assignments kind of just vanished. So, yeah, it's been tough, you know, the past month or so. But, you know, I'm okay making it through it. It's been hard to see. You know, you look on Twitter and stuff and you see a lot of newspapers and other online outlets, you know, laying people off or furloughing people. And, you know, so that's been definitely hard to see. But, uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, we get through this and come out on the other side. And there's lots of jobs and opportunities for everybody, hopefully. Both my fiance and I definitely enjoy North Carolina a lot more. We just uh, we lived in Atlanta for about two years and I think just kind of got sick of the traffic and the heat and just everything was so busy and everybody is just kind of on top of each other and just hard to get from one place to another. And just really it's flat, you know, you don't have, you know, the ocean or the mountains and I don't really have that here, but in North Carolina, I'm two hours away from the mountains and two hours away from the ocean. So that's cool. But yeah, I mean, here I live basically right in between Chapel Hill and Durham and I don't ever have to worry about traffic. Cost of living is, is cheaper here. And my apartment is bigger and nicer than the one I had in Atlanta and cheaper. So kind of hit the home run there. Um, So, yeah, we definitely like it in kind of every way. And, you you know, North Carolina, you still kind of get that, you know, the good good Southern food and, uh, you know, kind of Southern comfort. You know, everybody's nice here and stuff. So, yeah, I think going from the biggest shock was definitely going from the eastern shore where I had lived since I was six years old, went to high school, went to college, got my first job there to Atlanta, you know, where it's big city, super busy all the time. Traffic is crazy. You know, so that was the biggest shock, you know, going from there to here. This is sort of kind of a happy medium where like if I want city stuff, Raleigh is 20 minutes away. A lot of cool stuff going on there. You know, Chapel Hill is a really kind of vibrant kind of downtown area. And so does Durham. Um, So definitely a lot to do, but I don't have to deal with that feeling of like you're being rushed and everybody's just kind of on top of you. And, you know, like I said, the crazy traffic. Atlanta is the worst traffic I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, So I liked Atlanta. There's definitely some different parts, but I probably wouldn't live there again. (laughs) Just, you know, the traffic, just too much for me. Mitchell has been busy writing his first book on the history of high school basketball and the eastern shore of Maryland's Bayside Athletic Conference. I look forward to following up with him on that book and his progress. Sisters Nicole and Veronica Day have been diehard baseball fans for close to three decades. In this excerpt, the Day sisters talk about the decline of black players in MLB and how, as black women, they are stereotyped as being fans of baseball and hockey. As black baseball fans, I feel like we've seen a decline in black baseball players. And I think from when I first started watching in 94, you think of Bonds, Griffey, Sheffield, Mike Devereaux. I mean, and they all weren't stars. Kenny Lofton, Albert Bell, Kirby Puckett, Tony Gwynn, everybody. And it's like, you could name like 20, 30 black players all all the top of your hand. Now it's like, uh, it's very tough. And it's really hard to even think. It's like, I don't even know who most of these guys are. Maybe just because I'm like limiting myself and watching more of the Orioles than anybody else. But it's like, I can't keep track of them. And there's like, there's hardly any black players left. Yeah. Um, I think like last year it was less than 70 players. And that's, that's crazy. When you think of the era when like Griff was playing to add to your list, you got Mar- you had Marquise Grissom, you had Ozzy Smith, Lee, I can't think of his last name, but you had all, you know, Eric Davis. Um, you had all those players, Charles Johnson. 
Dwight's you know, dad. you're right. And you could, Kenny, oh yeah, Kenny Lofton. Kenny hey. Lofton was one of the best center fielders at, in his time. You had all those players. I remember how proud I was. I don't know, they used to have, I don't remember the source sports. They had source, had actually a sports magazine. And I went to Baltimore one time with my mom and dad. When, this is when I was a kid or younger. And we were in a, like a drugstore. And there was a source sports there. And it had... Lenny Webster and Charles Johnson on it. And I was so proud. I was like, oh, because the order of the time they had this. And it was like, I don't even know if they might have been the first time when there was two African-American catchers on the same team. And I was like, oh, wow, that's so great. And it was so proud. And, you know, and I remember Jet used to send out every year before baseball season, they would they would have a list of uh, African-American players. And every year it would just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're right now, it's just like, and then, of course, now you have one less since Adam Jones isn't there anymore. And then Sebastian and retired. It's just, and Curtis Granderson, he retired too. So that's three yeah, of players. Yeah, you're right. You're, yeah, you're right. And it's, it's sad because, you know, when you think of all the rich history and how much, you know, the African-Americans have contributed to baseball and, you know, just starting with Jackie Robinson and just, you know, going down and with Satchel Page, and, and even though he really didn't get to playing baseball like that, but still it's just, and, you know, um, Bobby Bonds. And Hank Aaron, all them, and it's like it's just sad because you know you look around and it's like, and there's there was teams. I think there was maybe two or three teams last year that didn't have any black players on there at all. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's hard. It's it, and it's hard being, and I'm sure you knew it's like what I'm talking about. But being grown up a, a African American baseball fan, people were looking at me like I was like I had horns in my head. They're like, you like baseball? Like they don't black people don't play baseball. I'm like, yes, they do. And I was like, I would like start rattling off the players. I was like, oh no, there's so and so and so, and it's like. It's difficult because people, they always say it's, you know, they always say, oh, it's a white boy sport. Oh, it's Latino boy sport. And I'm like, but black people play too. And it, it is difficult. And I know there's a lot of untapped talent, you know, young kids out there who, you know, play the game. And they, I don't think it's promoted enough within the African-American community because I think one of the reasons is, is they, they don't think it's cool. You know, that's not, they're like, well, that's not cool to play baseball. It's all, you know, they've always been geared toward basketball or football. And it's sad because you want it to, you, that's something you want to continue. And if you want that passion that those players had, you want to see that in the next generation. And it's just like, you know, you don't know if it is because I think baseball needs like somebody who they can promote. Like, I feel like, and I'm not just saying it because I'm a huge Adam Jones fan, but I feel like they missed the opportunity with somebody like Adam Jones. I think Adam Jones could have been the person that they kind of used to bring in a lot of African-American fans because he had that personality. I mean, he was friends with everybody. You know, he was friends with the Latino guys. You know, he and Nick Marquez are really good friends, and they're, they couldn't be more different. But he had that, and maybe it's because he's from San Diego, but he had that personality, but he was still really proud of who he was, and, you know, he was always quick to, you know, I remember one year he got, like, um, at the time, I think it was it was just he, Michael Givens, and um, Jonathan Scope, and he got them all shirts for, like, the something was to do with the Negro Leagues, and he had, he had to go all three of them shirts, and that's just how he was. So I think that they could have used somebody like him to promote baseball to the African-Americans and bring that fan base in. So, yeah, I don't know. I think part of the problem is you have people that probably play it in high school, but they're multi-sport athletes, and they feel like it's more lucrative in other sports as opposed to in baseball, especially if you're not seeing that presence there. Because they might have the mindset of it doesn't even seem like they're recruiting African-American players. And it could be that as well. They're not being recruited as actively or as sought after as other players um, in regards to that. But there's definitely a decline. Because I remember even when we were 
coming up as, you know, younger coming up in the sport, there was a lot. But there also, as Veronica said, were people that were like, well, baseball really isn't a black person's sport. You know, they kept thinking it was more so basketball or they'd be in like football. So I think they have to change that perception that it's not because you absolutely can. I know at one point they were trying to say it was the they didn't have it available to them. There's not a lot of on baseball fields in inner city and so forth. But to me, like that implies that that's where all African-American people live and they don't. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you probably don't have as many baseball fields as you would a basketball court or so forth, but you still do have people that probably play it. It's just, you know, they're looking at what's more lucrative or what they may be sought after. I mean, if you got some kid that, does both but you got people recruiting him you know from the university of kentucky for a basketball he's gonna go that because he's got a scholarship he's not gonna be like all right well no i'm gonna decline the scholarship and i'm gonna go and just play baseball and even at hbcus like you yes where i went most of mm-hmm. hbcus there are less black baseball players on the team and again and i'm not saying there's an issue with it it's just that either people aren't doing baseball as much as they should anymore or I, you know and it could be the same thing said with hockey and i know nicole you're a big hockey fan as well and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if people look at you funny because you like watching hockey and i don't know whether they will look at you more funny because oh a woman likes hockey or, or you're black and you like hockey and i i don't know mm-hmm. if that's the same look as you would for for watching baseball Right. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different. So I think because in baseball, there's a little bit more, but there's definitely that misconception with hockey, especially as you mentioned, because I'm a woman. I remember one time I had mentioned something about like in hockey, I was in my, it was in Russian class. I took Russian in college and we're all talking about things and they're like, I would have never thought with your stature, your demeanor, you're so soft-spoken that you'd be a hockey fan and enjoy the more physical aspects of it. And then I've had people say, why would you like that sport? It's a white person's sport. There's like no black people in here. And at one point I could literally probably name on two hands, all the uh, the African-American people in, in the sport. And that was counting people from Canada because they consider themselves to be African-American. So, you know, I definitely don't think it's the same as far as how the level of degree of stigmatism, but I definitely see where Veronica's is coming from because people don't think generally that a lot of African-American people like, the sport of baseball would even go and watch it and invest time in it and so forth. So, And then, too, with baseball, for a while you had Ken Griffey Jr. And people were like, you know, I don't think hockey's had that, at least not recently. I mean, back in the day they had, um, was it Willie? Was it Willie? Well, really, Willie Reed was one of the first that actually in- integrated the sport itself. But there's not really been a standout African-American right. player that a lot of people, I mean, you have like, you know, people from a team, you know, you PJ Subban from this team and that team and so forth, but no one that they kind of put out in, in the public space of the NHL. So I thought Jerome McGinley was that guy at one point. And when you think about it, like we look at teams like the Caps, they like led the market when it came to black players. There was, of course, Donald Brashear. There's, I feel like Donovan Greer is one of them. Of course, Devontae Smith-Pelly was the key figure on that Stanley Cup team uh, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And it's crazy that, yeah, I mean, there's a few black players in the NHL that regardless if they're, you know, Canadian or they're American, to me, black is black. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And there's just not a lot of them, but you know, that's another one of the sports where they're saying there's just not opportunity Um, that I do agree with in regards to that. Cause it's just, you know, it's 
you got to live in an area, even if you're not in the inner city, you have to live in an area where there's a rink. And then most of the time, your parent, either your mom or your dad or both, they're up at 6 a.m. driving you to the rink. And then there's the equipment and so forth. And it's one of those things where it's just not readily accessible for everyone as far as why they're not more fans. I mean, that one I can't attest unless it's just because there's not a lot of representation in the sport and people are just kind of like, eh, I don't see a lot of our people. So, yeah. And I was having like an early discussion. It's funny. We compared to like pro wrestling, how, you know, it's interesting. If you see more people that look like you, you're more engaged with it. And it's like, yeah, true. If you don't see enough black baseball players or black hockey players, you're not going to be as engaged. And we were just talking about black baseball players. You know, I completely forgot to, to mention it because his son was the Super Bowl MVP, Pat Mahomes, who used to pitch for the Twins. And that's a perfect example oh. of Pat Mahomes Jr. and Russell Wilson. Now, a lot of those guys were drafted by major league teams, even though some of those were like mm-hmm. token draft picks. But I mean, even Ken Griffey's son, who plays football, was drafted. But right. It's it's crazy when you think about it. It is very disheartening when you see the decline of black players. And you mentioned that Jet Magazine, where you'll see by team, they'd go by team. And it's easy to, and because I've heard some of the comments when we talk about why is there not enough black players in the majors, but it's easy to say, well, the Dominican players or the Hispanic players are of African descent. I mean, that's like saying, well... Why don't we have enough white people playing in the NBA? Well, you guys got some, uh, you know, European American guys. Uh, that, that's yeah, easy to say. You right. Luka mm-hmm, Doncic, mm-hmm. you got Kristaps Porzingis. You had Steve Nash at one point. It would look bad if someone said that to anyone. But right. I personally just think it is sort of disheartening to see that because I love baseball and I know that we are currently still very young. We all skew very young when it comes to the median age of fans for baseball because I feel like it's going up to like 60s or so. And we're Mm -hmm. well, well, well younger than that. And I feel like it's starting to get scary. As a fan of both baseball and hockey, the need to expand the fan base is something that should be addressed in the future to avoid a steep decline among African Americans. Something that hasn't seen a decline in popularity is the Super Bowl of professional wrestling, WrestleMania. My previous guests, Linwood Outlaw and Andre Watson, have attended several of the events over the past few years. The two were bound for WrestleMania 36 in Tampa, Florida, before COVID-19 squashed those plans. In this excerpt, Linwood and Andre talk about what it's like going to the event, the planning and preparation involved, some of their top WrestleMania moments, and more. And I was thinking about this, and Wood, I mean, you can feel free to correct me, and I was thinking about how all this started, and to the best of my recollection, you know, when we were in college, you know, after I found out Wood was a wrestling fan, we talked about, man, just one day we're going to go to WrestleMania, one day we're going to go to WrestleMania, and I think it was like mm-hmm. in 2004, um, yeah. you know, when, when Mania was going to be at uh, Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania 20. And at that point, they had a pattern. It seemed like WWE had a pattern of every 10 years they were holding Mania at the Garden. WrestleMania 1, the Garden. Mm-hmm. WrestleMania 10, the Garden. WrestleMania 20, the Garden. So I think we talked about, okay, man, so cool. So it's 2004. So if the pattern sticks in 10 years, they're going to have WrestleMania 30 at the Garden. We're going to the Garden. So whatever I, I guess we made that pack or whatever the years went by um and i remember watching wrestlemania 28 in 2012 on my couch with my wife and my mother-in-law and i'm watching it watching you know the pay-per-view and this is back in the day where you didn't know where the next year's wrestlemania was going to be until you were watching that wrestlemania this is before they started doing these press conferences and all that like a year and a half in advance of when the next wrestlemania was going to be 
And it flashed across my screen that Wrestlemania 29 was going to be in North Jersey at MetLife Stadium. And I was just like, oh, my God. I wasn't really prepared because we were thinking we, they were going to go to the Garden for 30. So that was our plan. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was pretty sure I texted Wood. I'm like, yo, I don't think you're watching this, but they're saying Wrestlemania 29 is going to be at MetLife. We're in there. We got to figure it out. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to be in there. And then that's when it all started as far as, like, the planning and all that stuff. Wood, I don't know if you remember it that way, but that's the way I remember it. Yeah, that's how I remember it pretty much. Because I remember around that time, it was like after WCW folded and everything, um, I was kind of watching wrestling like off and on-ish. And, you know, once we got into to working for a living and things like that, um, I was just more so wrapped up in the work and things like that. And then we watch wrestling so off and on. So I didn't realize until Dre had told me that they were going to have it at MetLife Stadium. He was like, this is it, man. We're going. We're there. And I remember – not really believing it. It was like, okay, like, yeah, we're going to WrestleMania, but it didn't hit me. Like, I'm actually going to go to WrestleMania because I always told Dre, I said, look, man, if I had never met you, I had never been to one WrestleMania, let alone the five I've been to. I always tell him that all the time because it's like, I just never really thought that it would happen. You know, I never thought that I'd be around people who would take it seriously enough to go. Like, you know what I mean? Because I always felt like it was like, like the Super Bowl almost. It's like one of those like events that you always think about going to or want to go to. Like, I've had friends who was like, man, I wish I could have went to a WrestleMania during the Attitude Era. You know what I mean? You just didn't think that you would get that close to that big event because it's right up there. Like, like I said, you Super Bowl. Look, man, I'm 36 years old. I've never been to Super Bowl. Never thought I would go to um, one WrestleMania, let alone multiple ones. And that first one, it didn't hit me that I was going until, like, maybe a couple of days before until we actually arrived in the New York, New Jersey area, man. And it's just like, it was just a different world there. But yeah, that's how I remember it pretty much. And Dre, like I said, thanks again, man. This is the the master planner of all of this. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just, it's, it's like, I don't even know to this day how he managed to plan it year after year after year after year after year. But he handles it, stays on top of it, always plans <laughs> great trips, man. Dre, thanks, brother. Thank you. As, as we've gone to, you know, these multiple WrestleManias. We refer to the WrestleMania day now as a work shift because yeah. <laughs> like you said, I mean, it's literally where we get to the stadium at like pre-show starts at like five. So we're in the stadium from like three to like midnight. So within the last couple years, I've realized the best way to handle it. There are two ways. Either choose your seats wisely. So for me, I'm picking out, I will only sit in club because you have more leg room, the bathrooms are better, less lines for concessions, all that stuff. But last year in New York, in Jersey, that was the best way to handle it. We were in a suite. And let me tell you something. I didn't even feel like I was there for seven hours because I was up walking around. We had a lot of room. I wasn't confined to this small ass seat. I mean, it was great. Like I, you know, there was a match I didn't want to see, which I kind of regret not watching live, which turned out to be really good once I watched it at home. Shane versus The Miz versus Shane McMahon. It's a great match. But I wasn't into it leading up to it. So I was like, you know what? This is going to be my bathroom break. I'm going to walk around, see all my folks, you know, see my friends and whatever that I haven't seen in a year, chill with them. That's what I did during that match. So it's all about choosing your seat. Now, if you want those people that want to be on the floor, good luck because you're going to be down there in a folding chair for seven, eight hours and then you got to walk all the way back up top through the 100 level just to get to a bathroom. 
So if I'm not sitting first row, I'm not sitting on the floor. What's the biggest live moment that you've experienced at a WrestleMania? And I already know it's either Go it ahead. has to be Undertaker losing. That has to be the like the biggest moment that you've experienced. I Go can't ahead. describe the level of disgust I was experiencing after that match. I still experience when I think about that match. Man, let me just explain what that whole situation was like. When it happened, I don't think anybody in the stadium literally realized what was happening. Nobody. I had never heard a stadium with like thousands upon thousands of people just fall deaf. You could hear any, you can hear anything and everything else in the stadium but people. Like, when it happened, everyone's looking around. They're confused. They thought there was a botched spot. They thought somebody had messed something up. And then um, I looked over to Dre, and I just saw, like, I had never seen such dismay and shock on Dre's face in this whole time I had known him. Then I had looked over to the right side, and you know how they said they had the Titan Tron set up, Dre? Like, I think they had, like, like two on one side of – two yeah. on each side of – the big one, and they had yep. 21 and 1. Yep. That's all anybody saw. And it was like at least 10 minutes before they played Brock Lesnar's music. Everybody was just stunned, shocked. I was so disgusted, man. I was just disgusted for the rest of the whole trip, man. Man, I still can't believe that happened. And just watching take a leave, I was like, man, I'm like, I just can't believe they did him like that. I just, <laughs> it, was just, it was just, it was a shocking moment. No moment, I don't think, will ever compare to that. Like, to be there live for that. And I remember the, the year before, we were speculating whether or not he was going to lose to CM Punk, which was a great match that he had with um, CM yeah. Punk. Um, and we were speculating. And then everybody kept, you know, in the line saying, well, you know, if if, if, if he's going to lose the streak, you, you want it to be this year because you, you're here. And you know what I mean? I was thinking, like, well, damn, wouldn't that be something our first WrestleMania he loses this streak? And I was elated when the streak kept going on. But next year, I was like, yeah, I thought it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to retire with the streak. And, man, I, I still can't believe it. it that, was, that was easily the most shocking moment, the biggest moment I've witnessed being at any of these WrestleMania's. What was that like to you, that moment that Kofi went in that belt? If I think about the three Mania moments, top three for me are probably um, Taker 1, Kofi 2, Daniel Bryan 3. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, Kofi, I mean, they didn't talk about this. They didn't come out and outwardly say it leading up to the match. But all black people knew that <laughs> there had never been a black WWE champion. Yes, The Rock. But then there's always the, yeah, but he's have some on. And he claims and more really, than he does black. They, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. But let's be honest. He yeah. claims he's more Samoan. He claims exactly. he's equally black and Samoan, which, again, no problem with that. <laughs> but let's just put that out there. Yeah, and right. they, they, they've always played up more so his Samoan heritage than they've had, they do his black heritage. So for the Kofi thing, everybody knew, right? And, you know, so there was no more year but, year but. So they didn't play that up as far as the storyline. You know, Kofi gave, you know, subtle hits like, you don't want to see somebody like us, like me, win the title. So black people knew. So when he won, it was just, I remember me and Wood, like we kind of hugged and we were jumping up and down. We were just, just yeah. so happy, and I, I got uh, I got emotional too again because you know the first time it was just it was surreal. I mean that's number two, um, just to be there for that, you know. And it wasn't supposed to happen. That was the thing. Like only reason Kofi was in that match was because Mustafa Ali got hurt and couldn't do the elimination chamber. So all this Kofi mania that was not supposed to go down. Had Mustafa Ali not gotten hurt, Kofi would have never been put in that position. And ironically. 
and the beauty of the whole Kofi thing is he was such good friends with Daniel Bryan and his story very so much mirrors Daniel Bryan's story from 2014 because Daniel Bryan wasn't supposed to happen. You know, Daniel Bryan was supposed to wrestle Sheamus for the 18,000th time at WrestleMania um, for the third year in a row because they had fought. No, I'm sorry. They were supposed to fight again. They fought at 26, 27, no, 27, 28. And then they were going to fight again at 30. But he was supposed to fight Sheamus. And then, you know, CM Punk walked out after the Rumble because um, CM Punk was supposed to face Triple H and the main event was supposed to be Batista versus Orton. But then that crowd in Tampa took over the Rumble and started doing the Yes Movement thing. And then that just, the ground swelled and he got propelled into the main event. And kind of the same thing happened with Kofi, an injury, a fluke injury. Yeah. Elevated Kofi. So I, I love the parallels between those two and the fact that Daniel Bryan was the one to do the job to Kofi, being in the same situation Kofi was in, you know, five years earlier. It was just, you couldn't write a better script. It was just amazing. It was great. Yeah. I mean, from top to bottom, it was a really good story. I was really captivated by the whole thing. And just for this perspective, I always heard, you know, from a lot of fans of, of color, man, just, you know, representation matters, man. Um, I think that. That you can't emphasize enough how important Kobe's victory was at WrestleMania last year for young black kids. I remember growing up, man, we saw a lot of colorful characters like Coco Beware, uh, Junkyard Dog. There were other wrestlers that I liked, like um, Ahmed Johnson, um, Mabel, um, you know, and I always felt a special connection to them because they were black. And they, you know, for better or worse, maybe they're not in the role models that some parents or people would prefer to see for kids. But listen, young black kids watch wrestling like anything else. And I think it's important for them to see successful black characters, you know. And I think that Kofi's victory, I mean, it was emotional for a lot of guys. Like, I remember that clip that was going viral with MVP when he, when he just busted out in the tears and then because um, oh, yeah. he saw a, a, a black man winning. Not the world title, okay? So we just saw like Mark Henry win the world championship and stuff like that, but the WWE title, which to me is still the chief numero uno title on the brand. It's, it's the title with, with the company's lineage. It's a title that ultimately represents the company. Kofi won that belt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not the universal championship. He won that belt. And yeah. I think, that, yeah, I mean, The Rock had won it, but it was it was much more significant when Kofi won it. You know, I think that... um. You know, when he did that, it was good for kids to see that because I think that, you know, representation all level matters. You know, you see a black president, you see a successful black businessman. Um, and, and you got to also understand, too, that, that wrestlers for kids, they take on like the the persona of superheroes. You know, when you see that kind of stuff happen, man, it was just a phenomenal victory, man. And I was just happy for Kofi, man. Cause I remember, Dre, do you remember the, the first WrestleMania we went to? He was on the pre-show oh, yeah. commentating. Yeah, in the, right. the pre-show for that, yeah. you know, he wasn't even on the card. He wasn't even wrestling. And think about it: we went next, went back to MetLife Stadium. Six years later, he became WWE champion. Yeah, and I mean, I, now who would have thought that? Like, you know, I mean, like, yeah, he's had other championships. He, he had the, the the long run with the the New Day with the World Tag Team Titles. He won an Intercontinental Championship. Um, but Vince, I always feel like, you know, and not just for black wrestlers, okay? Vince always feels safe, of, like, you know, Shawn Michaels would say about putting those undercard belts on wrestlers because there's no risk. 
for that, you know, but to, to go full burn to put the WWE title on Kofi, it was monumental. If Jinder Mahal, out of all things, got the belt, yet Nakamura didn't get the belt, the yeah, Samoa Joe didn't get the belt, uh, Lashley didn't get the belt, Braun Strowman didn't get the belt, that pissed me off more often than anything else. Yes, he probably would have been a flash in the pan like Warrior, but then still, the fact that he was red hot and you didn't pull the trigger, that's awful. That is absolutely awful. And Nakamura <laughs> losing to Jinder Mahal, I mean, I'm going back to Jinder Mahal being the champ that's uh that's like you know how Mick Foley always talk about Al Snow all the time yeah this is my that's my moment because Jinder Mahal should not have had the belt like I said we talked about all the guys in the 80s who never got a shot to hold the belt this is an example of you're just putting the belt on anybody and which which is very disappointing I mean yeah, I mean, shoot, Dolph, I just Dolph, want to Dolph held the belt, Mrs. held yeah, the belt. Not, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate, yeah, the Jinder Mahal had the WWE Championship. That's awesome. I just wanted to just jump in and just say that, yeah, the WWE title. All right, proceed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, Nakamura should have won that belt. How you would have booked, again, yeah. but since they don't know how to book non-English-speaking uh, foreign wrestlers. But then again, they haven't really had an English champ either. They haven't had an English champ. They probably had a good chance to put it on Davey Boy years ago and never did. I mean. It never did it. It never did it. And should have done it at least once. You know, at least a flash in the pan title. You know what I mean? Like, give it to a one week and have him drop it the next. It ain't even give him the courtesy of that. Yeah, I mean, it's not or Regal or Regal, but I know Regal had his issues, and that's why Regal probably never got the belt either. But Regal could have held the belt even as a transitional role, and that would have worked. Mm-hmm. You still have not had a true European champion. You never yeah. have. Did they? Did they have a book Regal in a main event role in WWE at any point? No, nah, I don't think I don't they know, ever did. He was did a mid card guy. I yeah. thought that after I mean, one again, of the King of the Ring, yeah. he was going to go, and then he got that drug suspension, and then they 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 just sort of like, nah, we're not taking this risk anymore. I know you guys mm-hmm. had the opportunity to go to Full Gear in Baltimore, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. What was that experience like, especially here? And you guys went to the first AEW Dynamite as well in DC. What was that experience like, and how did it compare going to a WWE event? Um, it was great, man. Like, so here's my whole thing with AEW, right? So, living where I live, and I was going to shows regularly around this area, Philly, Jersey, I would always hear about people in the line would always talk about, you know, what it was like to go to ECW back in the day, you know what it was like to kind of be there from the beginning and kind of help that revolution take form and get to where it got and, you know, and, and to where they got a TV deal and, you know, that sort of thing where they got on pay-per-view and that sort of thing. And I was like, man, I would get my right arm to be living in Philadelphia or New Jersey back in 1995, 96 and be a part of that, that ECW revolution. And with AEW, I feel like going to these shows ever since, like since the beginning, pretty much we're a part of that. So, Compared to WWE, I mean, the energy's there, but it's a different energy. A lot of people have said it's kind of like a cross between WCW and ECW all mixed into one um, as far as, like, the crowds that they get. But, I mean, it's phenomenal, man. People are so passionate about the, the product, and they're loud. I mean, there could be, like, like that building. When we went to the first Dynamite at the phone booth or whatever it's called now, it's always going to be the phone booth to me. It's Capital One now. It's always going to be the MCI Center to me. <laughs> It was almost sold out, but not completely, and it was loud. We went to full game Baltimore, loud, just loud. They are passionate. They love the product. It's a different product. I mean, it's just um, – it's been really fun to watch, man. It's just been, uh, it's been great to see them grow and, and to go from doing one show last year in Vegas to getting a TV deal by the end of the year. That's crazy. Crazy. 
honestly, AEW to me is very reminiscent of WCW. It is like I feel like there is like a WCW feel every time I watch it. But they're their own brand and their own right at the same time. Um, they have great talent. They have great main eventers and mid-carders. I think that um, over time, the women division will get better. I think that's probably the one thing that's probably lacking that, that comes to mind for me. But it'll get there. I mean, like, and again, for w, like when you compare it to WWE's women's division, uh, it's tough to do that. You know what I mean? Because I think I still think that the WWE's women's division is phenomenal, man. Because um, I, I remember just saying, like, just looking back on it like a year or two ago, I was like, man, just like this – the, the women's roster is so stacked and they're just like, it's just, it's really come a long way. Cause I remember. Look how far up, they came. Was, yeah. Look how far it's they like, came. I was like looking back on it, like, you know, back when like Alondra Blaze was the champion, like they, Vince would kind of dangle the division to us or dangle women's wrestling to us. And then it just go away again with no warning or announcement. And it being the same three women wrestling all the time. So Lunder Blaze, Bull Nakano and, and Bertha Faye, those same three, they'd be wrestling all the time. Right. And she had great matches with Bull Nakano and um, had a good, to me, I thought she had a good little program with um, Bertha Faye. I don't know. It was just something amusing about Bertha Faye and, and her Whippleman together. Harvey, yeah, Harvey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just something funny about that. I just thought it was an amusing pairing. I, I, I was entertained by it as a kid watching that programming story. Um, and I thought they had some entertaining matches. Let's be honest about it. I thought they did. I thought Alondra was still a good worker. And, um, you know, but, you know, when Vince gets a hold of these, these former WCW talent, he always wanted to give put his spin on it. He never really wanted to do – Except for Flair. I think Flair was the only guy that he basically just transitioned over to his show and presented him as he was to me. Like, even Sid, he had to give Sid a new name, and Sid Damn. kind of felt like a different kind of character when he came over, that sort of stuff. But I digress. The, uh, you know, the women's division, WWE, to me, continues to be awesome. So I think that when you compare AEWs to that, it's like, you know, yeah, they have a long way to go. But they'll get there. Um, I, I believe they'll get there. But I'm impressed with what I see from AEW. I think it's a good product. Um, I think it's good to have that option again for fans, I think it's a great thing for the business, man. And um, it's just great when you have that there. I mean, a viable option like AEW is, is building itself up to be uh, with, with with names and things like that. So I think with Jericho and, and Cody and Omega and Hangman, those guys are doing down there. is great for, for the AEW brand, but it's also great for the business as a whole. With the possibility of WrestleMania 37 being moved to Tampa and WrestleMania 38 now being in Los Angeles, it will be interesting to see how Wood and Dre's plans will change. While the excitement and electricity of WrestleMania is unmatched, there's nothing like competing when the lights are bright and the competition is hot, as I did during my time playing on my college's Honda Campus All-Star Challenge team. In this excerpt, I talk with good friend and former HCAST teammate Matthew Lang about our runs in the tournament and how he got started and involved in the Test of Wits. First place I met you at UMES was when we uh, did the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge. It would be. Yeah, long, long, long time ago, like uh, Andre 3000 would say in that uh, album. Long, long, long time ago. But (laughs) yeah, man, those years of playing on the team... Yeah, that was pretty, I'd say it's probably one of the uh, most unique things. I think, honestly, that's the only reason I stayed at UMS, because of that. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I had already had set the transfer to Salisbury uh, by the end of my freshman year, because uh, I wasn't happy at UMS. And I think a lot of people who know me, who went to UMS with me, knew I wasn't very happy at UMS. But, you know, that's the only reason I stayed, <laughs> because of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So how did you get interested in that and the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge? Did you do it in high school? No, see, what happened is Dr. Thomas, he was the vice president that UMES at the time, came to my school, Fairmont Heights, and I had never heard of University of Maryland Institute, never heard of it. But he came in and he got some of the top students uh, in my grade. I mean, he invited us uh, to the scholars program. So um, my father and I, we had us a weekend at UMES, the scholars weekend. So uh, I went there with my father, and, uh, and that's where I met Steve Wagner. He met <laughs> him on that weekend. Dr. Thomas was also the coach of the uh, academic team, the Honda All-Star Challenge team. And he had a scholars play against his team. And I pretty much kicked everybody on the team, but on the scholars. Uh, even Eldon, uh, one of my nemesis is Eldon. He always thought he was as good as I was. No, no, son. No. <laughs> so uh, I pretty much kicked their butts on the team. So went to the scholarship program weekend. They gave us a, a scholarship to the school, and Dr. Thomas wanted me to be on the team. So my freshman year was the last year they allowed grad students to be on the team. It was me, Eldon, this, uh, this other guy, and this little girl who is a writer now. I follow her on Twitter. Um, she, uh, we made it to the playoffs, but we were... And if anybody needs to know how the Honda Conference Autos Talents is set up, you have 64 historically black colleges and universities. We go down to Florida and Orlando, one of the, the resorts down there, and we have a uh, tournament, just like the NCAA tournament. And you, you're grouped in little clusters or rooms or whatever, and you make it out of your cluster, you make it to the playoffs. Then you make it to the semifinals and then to the finals. And you're, it's pretty much like Jeopardy, but team-based Jeopardy. Would you More like it's that? academic. That's perfect. Yeah, like it's academic. So you have a captain. You have three other people in your team. You answer questions. Once you get a question right, you have a bonus kind of thing just for your team. So our problem in my first year was that um, I was clearly the best player on the team, but I was a freshman. And we had seniors who didn't want to let the freshman shine, you know. So when, you know, years from now, when they had to do a documentary about our time uh, on, on the team, Earl, the last dance, of it, as it were, they'll go through, sift through the, the jealousies with my rookie year and how they didn't want me to shine. Uh, but the next year you came on the team and uh, you can stop me if I'm wrong because uh, we were trying to deal with current events. I mean, it was like uh, I was a Jordan and you were my pivot. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to disagree. I'm not going dis- hey, to disagree with that. I mean, then, I mean, like I said, it happened that way. I'll we, we, say, and I'll admit early on, we didn't mesh because yeah. I looked at him like, man, this dude is arrogant. I'm like, <laughs> oh, see, you know what was about that? That's not normal in me. Dr. Thomas did that. He says people have a tendency of thinking just because you're confident that you're arrogant. And so he told me he was working with me all through my freshman year. And my freshman year, it was bad. Because uh, my friend who came to college with me, uh, he ended up committing suicide that semester. And so Dr. Thomas was really trying to pull me together, talk to me. And he said, man, you need to get bold. And so I'm like, I mean, that's not really me. But okay. But when that next year, when it was a clean slate, all the seniors had gone. He said, man, this is your team. I had to do what I had to do. And was he on that team? Yeah, Pat that was on that team for a while, you, so. So some people just instantly dislike, I instantly dislike them. I don't mind people being confident. I don't mind people being bold. 
But when you're stupid and you're confident, that's a problem. And he thought he could hang with me without knowing the knowledge that I had. It incensed me. So I really tried to be a jackass toward him. That led to the coup of 2004, remember? Uh, oh my goodness and the um yeah and the thing is about and going to my story there did you always watch jeopardy and things like that because that we couldn't watch tv during the week other than educational stuff but we could watch jeopardy so jeopardy was good but most of my things i guess my knowledge came from reading uh you know my mother always made sure we had books to read so i just you know just read 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 i was pretty much and this is weird because I was really frustrated in school. Because, you know, I came in as a social science major. I wanted to be a, you know, I want to be a history teacher. But I couldn't get it clicking. I couldn't get in classes that I liked, that were interesting to me. So I changed my major to hotel restaurant management. Because I like, always like to cook and I like to, I always like to eat. So, uh, <laughs> so that left me with a lot of time to, I used to go to the library. And I was like, and this is a definitely pie in the sky, but I told myself, I want to know a little bit about everything. I don't even want to know everything, but a little bit about everything. So I used to go to like pull a book off a shelf and just start reading it. That helped me three times in the tournament because I pulled a book off the shelf. Um, the name of the book, uh, Metaphysics, please. Uh, uh, what's the name? And I used to quote it. Me, you just could laugh about it. Oh, what's it? Marlo? Or is it, or is it yeah, Marlo. Was it Marlo, Marlo, yeah. He said, oh, he is a hot whore indeed. <laughs> but it's a book written in the 1600s. <laughs> and I just pulled it off the shelf and I started reading it. Three questions about Christopher Marlowe were in the tournament. And it, it was just right there. So that kind of helped, just, just helped me you know, in school. I wasn't really interested in the classes, but I, was, I found something else to be interested in. And um, I know that helped with, with, with our team with the, with the tournament. Which is funny because mine is the opposite experience. I didn't do a lot of reading. Everything was from TV. The only thing I would read about is sports. I'd read about sports and other things. And like I said, encyclopedias. Everybody could tell you growing up had an encyclopedia, a bookshelf and encyclopedias right next to my bed. I would just go in and dive in and read those. And then, of course, watching TV. And see, that's my thing. Game shows were my whole thing. Jeopardy, I'd watch. And then... I tried to do an academic challenge thing in high school. It was me, Brian Banks, and because I had found out apparently the year before the teacher had did it and just picked some of the higher performing students and didn't reach out to anybody. And then they got smoked. And then all of a sudden the next year, different teacher trying to put it together, couldn't find two other people to put together a team of five. I was irritated by that, and I was really pissed about that. That was one of the many things I disliked about high school. I, I said I always put... You may yes at peace more than I would in high school, but less about the people there in high school than some of the other stuff. So then when I saw the flyer for it, I'm like, why not? I'm going to try out. And that's how I got to it. And speaking of things that showed up, remember, we were doing all our different things that we would do to practice and prepare. Sat up one night before we were supposed to leave, sitting back, taped a whole bunch of game shows off Game Show Network. The one question we were watching was it went tuition with Mark Summers. And the question that came up was about the longest, the largest island in the contiguous 48. Long Island came up. And that was one of the questions we got. It just because, I mean, and it happens, the weirdest thing. So even Eldon talked about how they were watching, what was it Pirates of Silicon Valley? And a question came up that they had got. And it's the, it's the weirdest thing. You never know when a question will come up. And also, my time working in radio i got a question about anita baker because she had just got off of semi-retirement to come back and record a new album that's how i knew that because the weirdest things that you pick up will end mm -hmm. up 
showing up and it's funny people don't understand just like people who have watched the last dance saw those those heated practices that uh, michael jordan would have mm. the practices for hcast were very competitive and heated to say the least i mean for the people that came after us if they thought those practices were tough it was more yeah nine out of ten times you're gonna bond with people or you're gonna hate them even more because <laughs> that's mm. that was the only way it was gonna go that's true it, it, we had some heated times i think uh um, it, it kind of helped me, you know, because Dr. Thomas gave me the, I was the captain because I was like the only other person other, uh, on that team. And I didn't want to be captain. I just wanted to be the high scorer. I didn't care about being the captain. But I think he, he made me the captain and he made me, you had to grow in it. You had to, you realize that it's, you got to hold the team together. And I think I did a pretty good job of that once I got my way. And once I got a certain person off the team. <laughs> so <laughs> I was all in after that. But um, that whole experience, I think that's it was the best experience I had at that school. It, it was sometimes I dream about it. I still think about it. It was just awesome. And it gave me a lot of confidence to, to move forward with. And, and uh, it, it, you know, it ended. We were one game away from winning the whole thing. You, little UMBS, we were one game away from it. And uh, it still haunts me to this day. Those two questions I miss. I don't care if I live to be 150 years old. Those two questions, just like I remember the word, uh, you know, me and my sister were uh, at the finals of the spelling bee in the school, and she beat me on because I couldn't spell monstrous. I was still, I will always remember monstrous. I will always remember Deborah and Honolulu. And looking at my stats for, from down there that year that we made it all the way to the finals, I was on fire. I was looking at the stats. I didn't, when I rang in, I had the answer. I didn't miss much. That finals, I missed a lot. And I think even though we won that first game and we lost the next two, it was heartbreaking, man. I, I remember coming off that stage crying. And uh, it was still the, one of the best experiences of my life. Man, is, that, that, and you it, know, it, talking about that, because I just think, because that was also that first game. That's the Yoda question. The Yoda yeah. question, because uh, again, I was sitting there reading that story about the, the bolted down Yoda that got stolen. Of course, the phrasing pattern was stolen, his image was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about that. I'm like, I'm just thinking the stolen image. I don't think of you know the way uh-huh. Yoda would talk. But I'm like, that's the only other thing I remember. Actually, it probably was a combination of that. But yeah, it's like it's the weird thing. Those years, it's either about retribution, even in some old scores, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Because South Carolina State, we all think about Ooh. South Carolina State, Hampton. That was always one of them. You know, and it's weird. I don't have the disdain for the Morehouse teams. Like, yeah, stuff happens. Yeah, it's like they were. Talk about arrogant. They were arrogant, and we had them. We were the underdogs. Everybody was cheering. Nobody was rooting for Morehouse. Everybody was cheering for us. And I want people to realize this was a huge thing. We were in a huge auditorium. Everybody was packed in the hotel resort. Michael Eric Dyson was our um, opening speaker. Um, in Vogue was our closing entertainment. Yeah. This was a huge kind of production. Honda really gave a lot of money to this program so we, we, we could do it. And I remember, and I, I and sometimes I think that I was dreaming, but I remember this. This was after we lost. One of those kids from another team came up to me and asked me for my autograph. I was like, "What?" How did it happen? I, I'll tell you this: it was two years later. People still saying stolen his image was, and I'm yeah. like, <laughs> and I was like, it was like this is a big deal. Everybody hated Morehouse because I admit they were good, but they were cocky, they were arrogant, and. Not to say I wasn't, but they had that total persona of cockiness and arrogance. And I think 
because I was the number two scorer for the whole tournament. I think the guy from Morehouse was the number one. And so everybody, I mean, every, it was, that place was packed. Everybody was waiting to see us. And when we won that first game, you could just feel the electricity. Everybody was going for us. It was just amazing. But then we, we just, I mean, I think, I, I, I'll speak for myself. I choked. And we had two more chances to win and couldn't do it. it it's something that plagues me even to this day. You know, but, and I look back at it and like, you know, hey, it, you know, it happens. I, I feel like this. And I compare it to my Sports Jeopardy loss. Eh, that was a piece out of it. You know what? I gave him a best. That's all I can say. You know what? If I felt like I laid an egg, then I would be less happy about it. And like, you can always look back. Like, I look back at two things. It's like, with the sports jeopardy, like, man, if I only bet 5,000 points, I win. Instead of trying to beat the person in front of me, I should have thought about the person who's in last because <laughs> that's the old Jeopardy trick. You cover enough to beat the person who's right behind you and cover to beat the third place just in case something happens. And I was like, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go ultimate win because if I got if I got it, it wouldn't have mattered. But and, and even then, at that point, I was like right before we went in the final Jeopardy, I'm like, you know what? I'm at peace. And it's like, you know what? I have a piece. I was telling one of the production system. For me, that was my last year. The last dance. I couldn't play anymore. So for us, and thinking about the year before, we, did we even make the playoffs? Yeah, because that was South Carolina, South Carolina State. State. So the year before that, we didn't we, make the playoffs. We beat, we, had- we beat somebody to get them in. And then that was, uh, oh. Came back and kicked their butt in that semifinal. Oh, my God. Oh, oh what so, was that? Was it uh, Savannah, Savannah State? This dude, I don't remember his name. It was Fred something. He was bulletin board talking about being the top scorer and then the comments of using the slow bus thing. I remember that. And then uh, we whooped him like, as my favorite announcer, Jim Ross, said, uh, one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. Um, <laughs> and that might be the most profane I'll get this whole time. But And we both outscored him that game. That was a game, I think, he was in negative. I think we might have both scored 100 points or something because I, I don't, you know, some of the stuff gets foggy, but yeah, we both outscored him. He guaranteed he was going to make make the playoffs. He was going to be top scorer in his room and some other thing. He did not make the playoffs. You were the top scorer. Uh, I was second top scorer in that, in that room. And when people, I know it feels like we're like old folks talking about battling in wars and everything. My only wish is that of that 2004 one, I wish clear videotape of us playing because yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, we could always ask the Honda people. Maybe somebody knows if there's some videotape of it because the one that we had record for us was so blurry and far out that you couldn't see anything. But mm. that'd be nice if they did like little archives, like, you know, they do the NFL films team yearbooks. That would be that would be nice. Just that whole experience there. I mean, mm-hmm. and we'll admit for a team of underdogs, we were probably the most antisocial group of underdogs. We ain't mess with them people at all. And when we you can't, think about it, I've been yeah, handle business, and <laughs> as me Wad would say, I'm in the butt kicking business, and business is booming. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the funnest time I've ever had. Oh yeah, man, I can't Ready? even think of anything i mean like the sports jeopardy was fun and that's a different level of fun because it's like when you're in that team format it's something different because you know it's not just you it's everybody else everybody had their strength everybody had their knowledge and sometimes you're like man how did they they pull that question out out of thin air because i always joke i wish i sat out my senior year and waited the next year with the group where it's mark and meredith and all them because then we would have ran that table, no doubt. I would have, I would have sat out and taken a, a redshirt year and come back for my <laughs> second, second senior year just to run because we would have ran that table because there would have been um, no no stopping us at all. Yeah, now that format has changed completely. It, it's not even the same. It's forty eight teams. They're in L A. They don't even do the same. Uh, 
college bowl format like they used to is something completely different and it's only four people three people in the alternate and they have it on honda's thing it's so different from what we played i'm not interested i mean you just have to see it yourself to see old it. man screaming from his porch i'm not interested <laughs> I mean, yeah i mean it's funny it's i just watching for curiosity's sake to see how different they were like the ge college bowl games they used to do in like the 60s and 70s and 80s where like pat mm. sajak was hosting it basically you know it's the format that honda h casco on originally and then once they changed and a different production company took over it's completely different still kids don't know any of their old school music because man i already knew my categories mine were sports some history old school music because it came up when we had all those tv themes in that one bonus and we nailed every single one of them and i remember the year before south carolina they sitting there couldn't get a single motown song right it's like they were unworthy to hold that mantle but um yeah and it's funny it's just those were probably the best four years i mean what else could you do in college i mean i did a whole bunch of other stuff i was doing radio and i did the plays and did all that stuff still don't know how i balanced all that stuff still don't know how i graduated but <laughs> i did it i did it i mean i guess once you get out of all the uh non-essential stuff that are required i always tell you senior year I, I needed one more science and i had like environmental science and i skipped a ton of the classes uh one of the teachers and like yeah it was the honda team it's like we can't have you not pass and he just gave me a c i'm like thank you <laughs> hey you know sometimes the um i guess fringe benefits of being on uh, well that, that that's my story in my senior year because i transferred into um hotel restaurant management when i was a sophomore i didn't take any of the, the beginner classes mm-hmm. so my senior year my last semester i was taking 19 credits as a senior and i didn't go to none of them classes none so but, but i had a good gpa because i was at the honors convocation and remember at the honors convocation they had us up there congratulating us. So my two teachers were together, and they came to us afterwards. And like, Mr. Lang, uh, I haven't seen you in my class. So uh, Dr. Thomas said, oh, he'll be all right. So Dr. Thomas talked to him a little bit. He said, oh, come see us. Man, I went to some booth for both of them. They gave me a test. I got a B and an A out of both of them class. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, yes, indeed. It takes some benefits. But, you know, my senior, I worked so hard for that team. I did a lot. So it made me feel good that I got a little bit of reward for it, you know. Yeah, and so. that was when we were actually bonding a lot closer. We were doing team Bible study classes and yeah. And that's very interesting. I'm actually going through the Bible app. We're doing Judges right now, which is some messed up stuff when I read through Judges. We're on 17 and 18. I love the Old Testament, man. There's little stuff in there that, make, that just make me giggle. And the te- really, the team bonded very well. We were doing the Bible study and things like that. Man, I felt so good. And everybody was coming to the Bible study. I'm like... I, I felt good doing that. That was some good thing. You're right. We were bonding over it. It was some good stuff. We had a good team together. Man. Yeah. And team. like I said, and, and even like the support system that, that year when, you know, after everything changed, like I said, Steve was coming to practice, which I'm all, I'm going to get Steve on the show. He already came up with the episode title. It's called Dr. Swag. So yeah, everything was working. We were coming together, you know, as broke college students, we were, <laughs> you know, going to the calf, whoever was on the meal plan. Yeah, we would do that. I mean, video game nights, uh, yeah, like I said, that was a great bonding experience, and, you know, those are good memories. I still, I was looking, I found all, a lot of my photos from Orlando that are run and everything, and, of course, the group photo, the team photo and everything. That was pretty yeah. cool. 
simpler times, better times, best I guess best way to say. <laughs> Food was really good. That's that's one of the things. And you could tell how different things were. You know, it was like a little slightly after 9-11. So I remember I had the green suitcase, this old rickety green suitcase. Uh-huh. And we put all our sodas in everything. Yeah. <laughs> soda can. We were drinking out of soda cans for a while. And then, you know, with Matt, paired them with Mad Dog and then the things that you learn out of that. But um, yeah, it, it's funny going into that whole theory, just the Honda thing. It's just being able to recall something so quickly. It's just like some people say it's useless trivia, useless information. But to me, it's only as useless as you allow it to be. Like, for example, if somebody gets on Jeopardy, you make money off of it. It ain't that useless. The only problem is then what's the point after that? Because after you played on Jeopardy, you don't need it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was great catching up with Matt talking about our old war stories at HCASC. In the new year, I'm looking forward to doing an episode focusing on the memories of HCASC as well. For our final segment of this Best Of episode, I'm bringing back a long-awaited interview that I was able to conduct with good friends Thomas Banks, Christian Blake, and Corey Colick about some unpopular opinions regarding R&B music, including ones involving the late Aaliyah, Beyonce, and much more. Let's go into the unpopular R&B opinions. For example, Beyonce, according to Chris Waters, Beyonce is overrated. And if Aaliyah had lived, she would have been a bigger star. In fact, he said Selena-level star. If Aaliyah was alive, Beyonce would not have her pedestal, which she would have right now. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I agree. She would be good, she'd be a good entertainer, but she yeah. would not have her pedestal. She would have still been in the group. <laughs> <laughs> Man, look, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, Aaliyah was owning the game, bro. That she was. was. I mean, was. Aaliyah was owning the game. Just like if Pun was still alive, it, and Biggie and Pop was still alive, this would not be the way it is today. I don't think it would at all. I would have said Tupac. She was, yeah, no. And I would no, say Tupac would have probably enough. gone into acting because he was starting. He was starting to go that way. I think he would eventually left and oh, go into acting, going the been, Will Smith route. No, it would it would have been more conscious rappers though. People that was actually trying to talk about revolutionists. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You got Immortal Technique that like he's like just like Pop. You know what I mean? In a sense. But like it, you would have people more aware of things instead of all this. Because let's be real, man. The, the the music industry, like I said, like like what you were talking about earlier, it's so bubblegum crap. And no mm-hmm. offense, but the white rappers or the UK people and, over in the UK, and, they appreciate and that, and the music not, more than than what we get. But uh, see, see, that's the funny thing. UK always appreciates and that, stuff more than oh, America oh, does. And, that, and I just think it's because they won't let. Um, the, the hip hop has been as I mean, just like the music, let, it's been changed so forget, much. Let, let's not forget something. Aaliyah won in her categories everyone she was in. Oh no, my podcast. Beyonce when she was with Destiny's Child, they lost to NSYNC. They lost to NSYNC. They lost to the Backstreet Boys. They lost to Christina Aguilera. They lost. Well, I, so, I, I, I will let's say this. Real. I, I will say this. Beyond, like, and there's no doubt, Beyonce, she got, she, she got vocals, she, she can sing. I think that Aaliyah's death gave my her I have my uh, an avenue. Yeah, no, I just got in here, man. Like, <laughs> you know. So, I, I, I think that if Aaliyah was around, it, it would have been, been different. But will Beyonce still be rising? I still think she kind of would be. You know. You're gonna have to get something, bro. I'm gonna order some chicken wings. <laughs> that's it. 
You're done, bro. I'm the thing is, also, Leah had, you know, Timberland. He had, she had Missy, a lot of stuff right there. So I think that was also a huge benefit to Aaliyah as well. I mean, and she, and she was really, really young. I mean, think about this. Right now, she'd probably be in early 40s. Early 40s right now, still putting out hits. I mean... I think she had Leah had more appealing songs than Beyonce had, and, and that's easy to say to me. Yeah, I don't care nothing about Beyonce. Her, her, her camel-looking boyfriend. I'm sorry. They didn't hear me. Hey, yo, I'm, yo, I'm yo, not a fan of Beyonce. I mean, yeah, but yeah, you know, like I'm not either, but you know, like I do think Aaliyah's death kind of gave her an avenue to kind of step through and be like, you know, okay, I, I can take over, you know. Because you're right, Aaliyah was, you know, she had the, you know, Queen of the Dam. She had the, you know, the 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 Jack, what was it, the Jet Lee movie? Yeah, mm-hmm. Romeo, mm-hmm. Romeo mm-hmm. Must Die. Yeah, you know, Rock the, you know, Rock Creature. Oh, okay, to the Grave. Yeah, yeah, like, she was preparing to take that next step into, like, super, super, superstardom, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. While Beyonce was still, you know, Beyonce was young, you can't knock her for that. But her death, like, you know, left a void for her to come through. Yeah, I mean, it didn't... she would have been on Queen Latifah status. Could make an album, acting, and, and everything. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many what ifs, and she really would have. That's so many what ifs, and we, and we think about it. This happened when we were just in college, freshman year, and she died. Next thing you know, it would be next year that she had passed away, and it was just so crazy. She would have done it. She would have made. She would have made a living out of her career, unlike. I know Diane Ross. Diana Ross has really been a. Uh, uh, I can't. You know, I didn't think she's that great of a singer. Uh, the funny story they talked about how she uh, supposedly said that. Like, Donna Ross. Patty LaBelle. Donna Ross, Ross, like, Ross to me was garbage. <laughs> well, what was it? Donna Ross was garbage. Let's, let's put it garbage. Gordy. Corey. What do you have to be about Barry Gordy? Nah, what's going on? Huh? I can't. I can't agree with you on that one. I mean, I'm not. Donna Ross to me was she's not a, that good. She's a pioneer, though, man. You can't. You can't say she's garbage. To me, Donna Ross is not that good. <laughs> she's right. a pioneer who gave it. Right. Gave it up to get her fame. She gave it up to get her fame. I mean, she listen. She became the queen of the disco. And she also became the queen of you know what. Okay, I mean, so we gonna keep the PG. I always okay, told him. I thought he gave up his. He gave, he gave up his freedom too. I was <laughs> he just gave up his. I, I'm I talking about Diana Ross, <laughs> Miss Diana Ross. She knew what she was doing, and she knew that by sleeping with Barry Gordy and having a baby by Barry Gordy. Okay, but that's beyond taking too. over that's... the lead of the Supreme. <laughs> bro, that's that's what they doing. But that's what you. That's what they're doing, bro. Man. That, that, that's not, there's I'm no sorry. difference from back then what they're doing today. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that some I mean, of them, yeah, you're if, right. you're gonna, if you're, if you're going to get with somebody and you can't even sing, you're just hurting my ears even more. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, that's just terrible, bro. At least she could sing, though. Like, yeah, yeah. She may have done what she did, but at least she could, she could, you can't have, you can't go and sleep with somebody and have no talent. <laughs> well, uh, now, now you can't. Now you can, but uh, but uh. I will say this: it's just that the fact that I was insulted to hear that, Gla- that Glass Knight said that Diana Ross didn't like her because she thought she was ripping off her style. <laughs> yeah, Gladys Knight said that, that Diana Ross, or maybe it was Pat, uh, yeah, I think it was that or Patty LaBelle. One of them said that that Diana Ross was jealous of them because they felt that. They were ripping off Diana Ross's singing style. 
mean, Palabelle and and Gladys Knight are like on a different level. Yeah, than I mean, but, but it was. But my thing was like, there was people, there was people well, better than Donna Ross back then. They can like 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 Gladys That's Knight. It was people better than her. My favorite old school female singer. Yeah. No, like, and shoot. And bring it back, Mary, 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 you had, Mary, Mary can now sing. Yeah, Gladys. You had Anita. You had Anita Baker. You Whitney. had you had Anita. You had. Uh, uh, hey, Thomas. You know what? I always say this: that uh, that Tony Braxton is a watered down version oh, of Anita my. Baker. Yes, she is. Because <laughs> yes, I heard, I heard L.A. Reid even tried to find somebody who sounded just like Anita Baker. Why are you calling me? That coolest person in that video was Dr. Drake. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, Tony Tony practice. That, that was, that was terrible. Yeah. Days a week. <laughs> Another Tony Braxton. Just be a man about it. You can't tell me they don't sound. You don't gotta lie to me. You can't say it. I mean, that's a poor imitation of Anita Baker, and I and I always said that every time. It's like again, it's like you try to find Anita Baker, but you found someone that's like. Ten times worse, and I like Anita Baker. There's nothing wrong with Anita Baker. I just had to use it. Tony Braxton is is a poor Anita Baker knockoff. It's dollar store Anita Baker. That's all she is. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, Anita Baker is one of the one of the top ten. You know, there would never be another Anita Baker. Time. Never, ever. just like Aretha. Just like there never, never be another Aretha Franklin. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, <laughs> Aretha. Moving on the list, another unpopular R and B opinion from. Uh, Mark Demore, he said SWV or John A. He w- were the best R and B female R and B group over of the nineties, even over in his opinion TLC. Now, when he mean vocally or overall, I think vocally. I mean, no doubt, like SWV could sing better than TLC, but TLC had Babyface writing. Yeah, like, I mean, Babyface was he his pen was golden, like. So yeah, I got a yeah. group. I got a group. I thought was, I got a group that I thought was better than SWV, but I just think that then it had the right, the right promotion people behind them was Brownstone. Brownstone, Brownstone could sing, and yeah. I'm sorry, Brownstone was what they, they. If you listen to Brownstone's album, that album was fire, and the singing was 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 from the heart and soul, bro. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But SWV had that 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 push from from Jimmy Jam and, and Teddy Riley and all them stuff like that. But Brownstone album was classic. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, but but back to Mark. Yeah, I don't know. Like you know, I like SWV's voice, but overall career wise, like TLC had it. Like they had it. Red Light Special. Uh, you know, uh, 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 man, what was the joint where they had um, at the college? Oh, man, what about your friends? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Waterfalls, that that was classic. I'm sorry. Yeah. Female groups, man, I don't know, man. I mean, Coco was a beast, man. I thought she was dope, man. So I like SWV. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to the song by Coco called Midnight at Alatina. She can sing. She got that album. It's a gospel song. It's, it's, it's called <laughs> Midnight. And you listen to that song, and I guarantee you will, you will change your mind about Coco singing. Coco can sing her behind all. Because she sang that song. Don't wait till midnight. That, that song was classic, bro. I'm telling you. Yeah. It's a gospel song called Midnight. Look for it. I'm telling you. 
Another one I wanted to come up with, uh, we were talking about the best R&B lead singer excluding Michael Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass, and Smokey Robinson. Best R&B lead singer. Best R&B lead singer. Cisco! Oh. <laughs> Yo, I knew I was going to say that. I knew I was going to say that. I knew it. I knew it. Dun, 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 dun. I knew it. Yo, how can I love you like was Tom's favorite joint? Like, he played that joint forever. Hello? On that Cisco album. Cisco! Oh, my God. <laughs> no, man. Actually, probably like, uh, I would say Dave Hollister, man, from Blackstreet. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I, I like that. that. I mean, I, 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 I'm talking about out of them, but you, are you talking about like most successful? No, in your opinion, who's the best lead singer of any R&B group, excluding Michael Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass, and Smokey Robinson? That's a hard one, buddy. That's the real. No, one. It is. A, that is a real hard one, man. Best lead singer. That's hard, man. It is. And I know I just missed the name. Singer. Oh man, it could be. It could be. If it I had to go, female. if I had to go, anybody. It'd be it'd be the lead singer from uh from from Mint Condition, uh Schooly. Oh yeah, Schooly dope. Schooly, Schooly. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, probably Philip Bailey from Earth Wind and Fire. Like his voice was crazy. I I, I mean, would you consider him the lead, or would it have been uh, uh Maurice no. White? I can say in the lead. Like, I mean, you know, they didn't really have a lead. I mean, I can sort of, you know, they're like an equal player. I mean, now, now Philip Bailey's a lead singer since, since Maurice passed away and retired. I mean, he's a lead singer. I mean, if you really want to go, Dave Hollister. Yeah, that's Dave Hollister. He was a lead singer. He was a lead. He was a lead singer of Blackstreet. Overall, yeah, I don't know, man. That's Dave Hollister crazy. went solo and put out three albums that overclass it. Before he left that street, (laughs) very tough one. I'm trying to think of someone as well. I am. I played the yeah, yeah, because I got Bobby, Bobby Brown. You got put Bobby in the conversation. I thought Ralph was the lead singer. That's the other thing. Bobby Brown, Ralph Trans man. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Ralph was the lead singer to me. I felt like you heard most of his voice on that song than than you would Bobby. But Ralph, Ralph, need a Ralph was a good singer. Ralph was a good lead singer. Yes, he was. But his al- solo album, it was, it was, not, it wasn't like Bobby. Bobby took that. Bobby's all album, all of Bobby's albums, even the song he, even the, even the CD that he did, uh, uh, with him and, and him and Whitney together were classics. I mean, Bobby took that lead singer <laughs> to a whole new page. And I'm, I mean, I I get Ralph's props. Don't get me wrong, but Ralph's sensitivity was nice, but. Bobby was. But basically, everything New Edition was like Ralph singing with, you know, with, with everybody else either rapping or doing other stuff. That's why I'm like, I can't think of anybody. This is one that I saw that uh, Miles Bacon sent. Miles Bacon said Stevie Wonder is the most underappreciated artist in recent and recorded American history. I love Stevie. Yeah, Stevie was the man. I love Stevie. Underappreciated? Nah, 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 nah. Like, like, Stevie gets props. I do want to put like a, a a part B to this. This is to me, someone who doesn't get a lot of credit because they're only known for one big hit, and it's one that, while it's a popular song, his resume is underappreciated. Ray Parker Jr. Ray Parker Jr. is a very underappreciated person because all everyone knows him for is Ghostbusters. But only one hit. Oh uh, no! Well, no. Well, if you think about this. He wrote. He wrote Mr. Telephone Man. Yeah, but like, I, like I mean, that. 
I mean, songs like I mean, solid songs. He had solid songs like uh, Jack and Jill, uh, Woman Meets uh, uh, Other Woman. Come on, don't. This ain't like the Key and Peele thing where it's just uh, him singing every song that sounds like Ghostbusters. <laughs> I just know Ghostbusters. That's all I know. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Ray Parker Jr. I mean, and it's funny you ever you listen to him, and I I didn't think about this because I know he worked with them, but. He has a little bit of a Marvin Gaye type sound too sometimes because he worked with Marvin Gaye. He he co-wrote some songs with Marvin Gaye too. Yeah. I was gonna have to look this up on Wikipedia, but I know he was like a second guitarist for Marvin Gaye too. Uh, I, I tell you what though, who are you gonna call? Me, I mean, another lead singer. Going back to the lead singer is is. I mean, we can say we want Cisco did carry that. That lead, and then jazz, jazz, even jazz by himself. Jazz had a nice song by himself, but Cisco. I don't know the end of No, jazz, jazz had that one. Jazz had that one song on another Professor Two soundtrack. So listen to it. You know what I talk about all the time, Christian. I talk about all the time. Go to the another Professor Two soundtrack and play the song by jazz, and I guarantee you, you will see a different side of jazz. You'd be like, okay, the man can sing by himself. Jazz. I, I had another unpopular opinion. Maybe it is popular. Uh, Jagged Edge is garbage. Oh God, no! <laughs> it's just a bunch of yelling, man. That's all they are. Because, I mean, compared to no one twelve, they're garbage. They're hot garbage. And then if you put Joe, if you put Jodeci and Drew Hill in the category, uh, Jagged Edge is garbage. They are compost. They are recyclables. They are uh, maybe biodegradable. That, that's how level of garbage Jagged Edge is. I was never a Jagged Edge fan. I don't know what it was. Uh, I was. I was never, you know, none of that stuff. You know, it was like it was popular. Promise, uh, you know, let's get married, you know. But I was. I was never. I had Drew Hill, so I didn't need, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I promise made, to never ever hear those guys sing. made a point. You could take the lyrics from one song and put it into the backing of another song, and it still sounds the same. Basically. You can put Walt right out of heaven to let's get married and and you wouldn't even miss a beat. Jagged Edge to me, compared to the one twelves and the and the Drew Hills and the other groups that are out, Jagged Edge, I mean they they, they had some good groups. I mean they had good songs, but they weren't to me like as big as they were. Like to me. They were good, but they weren't as good as they were. <laughs> to me, they are like the ninety eight degrees of R and B groups in the nineties. That's what Jagged Edge reminds me. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically the best way to describe it. 98 degrees. Yeah. 98 degrees is all right, man. And they're still rising. But they're not Bastry Boys or, or NSYNC. I mean, compared to this, like, let's say if there was a comparable way to, if there's a way to compare, like, if Jodeci was like NSYNC, then Drew Hill was like maybe Bastry Boys. Um, I don't know what you would compare one twelve to, but they're still they're still a higher level than uh, than uh, Jagged Edge. Here's what we're gonna do: we're not gonna put Jodeci in the same sentence as MC. I know. <laughs> hey, these are comparable. Yeah, you cannot. You cannot do that. Yeah, no. I know. I know. I know. It's blasphemous. It's like you know. It's like comparing Chicago to the Commodores. Uh, actually, they're more like Earth, Wind, and Fire. If you think about it. I hope you enjoyed taking a trip back to some of the most interesting interviews from the show over the past year. If you're interested in listening to the complete episodes featuring today's guests, you can find links on each episode in the show notes on your podcast app or in the blog post. 
Coming up in our next episode, we'll look at the NFL playoffs featuring two episodes, one focusing on the teams who are in the hunt for the Vince Lombardi trophy and the teams who just missed out on reaching the playoffs in the final week. As always, new episodes are available wherever podcasts are heard and soon on our YouTube page, The Sports Refuge. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks, be safe, and Happy New Year. You've been listening to The Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.